Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. I'm Gail McDonald. And I'm Gordon McDonald, Gail's husband. A few weeks ago, Howard and Holly sent us an email and asked if we would consider talking to the congregation for a few minutes about a subject that's been very important to many of you, the subject of the relationship of two people in marriage. So we'd like to talk a little bit today about our experience because we're pretty close to celebrating 60 years. Wow. Do you remember those early days when we first met back in 1961? Well, I do, and, and because we were so poor, we couldn't even afford phone calls or get in a car and take a ride up because we, we couldn't even buy enough gas, so we decided to write letters. And you remember those letters, sometimes I remember you wrote two a day, many times, and uh, many years later, got all those letters and put them into four of these. We have all four of them here, but we'll just show you the two. There's my handwriting. If you can read it, you get a medal. <laughs> all it's these a... handwritten letters from Gordon to me and mine to his. And in these books are all of our dreams, our sense of vision and mission, what we wanted to do with our life together, and and to to whom would we be accountable? One of the interesting things about these books is they reveal that we were really searching for principles that make a relationship last in in a great resilience, and also really come out of the scriptures, so that we could follow Christ from the very beginning. And wherever we went, we were always asking people questions and then recording those kinds of principles that they gave to us in these notebooks. So 60 years ago, you can see the chronicle of how we started out trying to love each, each other as Christ loved the church. Well, and you, one of the things that is still amazing to me is about a year ago, we decided we would reread these four scrapbooks, all the letters in them, and how, how much we have followed through on all of these convictions that we had so long ago, and how they have held us. And that's why we want to share this with a group of people who maybe have just begun the relationship or are in it and, and need encouragement to not give up. You know, the uh, a day or two before we were to get married, I asked somebody, I don't remember who, when you get up on your wedding day, if you were me, what scripture in the Bible would you meditate on? And whoever this person was said to, me, said to me at that time, that's not a hard question for me to answer. I'd read chapter 5 of the book of Ephesians, and most specifically somewhere in the 20s, 23, 24, where Paul says something very specific to the Ephesian husbands. But I don't think we would be desecrating that passage if we didn't say that Paul really was talking not only to the Ephesian men, but the Ephesian women, and saying basically the same thing to both of them. Because they had grown up before they met Christ in a very pagan, violent, 
sexually promiscuous uh, uh, culture. And so Paul has to start with the Ephesian men and the women and say, right at square one, these are some of the principles that make a marriage uniquely Christian. And the particular verse that really grabbed me that morning when I read it, I'm a young man, 23 years of age, a little bit naive about things, and I read Paul saying this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it and cleansed it by the washing of the water of the word. And the verse goes on. I remember this was about 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning. And for the first time, it was like my heart was opened. And I thought I understood a little bit of what Paul was saying to those Ephesian men. Because this is what I was hearing. If you're going to marry somebody you say you love, and I was getting ready to marry you that day, then make sure that you know you are willing to die for that person, that you're willing to serve them as a servant. That's pretty big stuff for a young man. And I had to sit there and think, Lord, have you given me the, the bravery and the wisdom and the tenacity? Because I want to love Gail even to the extent of being willing to die for her and to help her to become the woman, everything that God wanted her to be. And I've had the chance to watch that goal realized in you as you have always served me. And together we have had this reciprocity that we'll talk about as we work through this. We should say that we probably are not going to look at the camera very much because this is a conversation between you and I. No, I'd rather look at you. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I like that. And uh, it's also that it's important to how we sit, how we touch, how we laugh. And so this is usually the way we do one of these things, just talk. Well, we have time constraints, and so we can't talk about all the things that are in those notebooks. But let's take four or five ideas that came to us in those early days that have stood the test of time. For example, here's one that a lot of people don't talk about very much. That when you marry another person in the Christian form, you need to understand you're not only just marrying that person, but you're marrying their family. You're entering into a way of life that they shared for the first 20 or 25 years of their life. So you have to make room in your life for things that your wife has to teach you, or the other way around, of course. So we learned rather early in those days that you bring each other's family into the marriage in that sense of the things that you've learned, faults, failures, flaws, strengths, powers. It's all there mixed up in those early days when you choose to commit yourself to another person. One of the things that happened during those earlier years in our marriage that, that is a picture of this, I think, is an important picture, is that uh, I ha had a bad experience with cars in my growing up years with my, my dad. I, my dad didn't have any idea what it was doing to me. Uh, but I, we lived in a, a community, a farming community, where we were probably more um, rich in, in Your wealth, family. my family than a lot of people. And, um, and so my dad just liked to show off this 
brand new car every year that he got. And he always bought the most expensive car. Yes, and and the more the flashiest, and and there were convertibles, and they they went up and down, and they they were, it was just everybody would watch me as I got out of the car. Let's just put it that way, and and one day. Well, I think if I, if I were to pick the story up, I began to notice that every time I talked about a car, there was something in you that became immediately resistant, um, moody. Uh, and I could tell there's something I'm saying or the way I'm saying that really bothers you. And then one day you and I were talking about something else and you brought up this subject of your father and cars. And bang, it hit me. This is what's behind Gail's attitudes when we talk about cars. What she's hearing in our day and age, as the pastor and spouse of, a, of a, another congregation, she's hearing all those poor people back in her childhood who resent the fact that she has privileges. Well, don't own. forget what they said to me as I got out of the car was, here comes the rich bitch. Which is not a particularly complimentary Well, word. back in those days, that was a, a word you you didn't want to be called. And so that was nestled in there. And I could I was essentially exchanging those people back then for our congregation and thinking every time we came with a new car, that's what they were calling me. I remember asking you, I said, so you hear the congregation saying something like that. And I remember the tears started coming down your cheeks, and you said, that's exactly what I'm hearing. So being the sensitive man that you were, and this is key, you began to think, how can I make this easier? And you, for quite a few years, you didn't buy a new car as, as we worked this through. But here this baggage was, and you've had things in your, your life as a child growing up that I needed to listen to. Huge, huge part of whether or not a marriage is going to make it. So what's the next thing? Well, the next thing that you have on your piece of paper is that we also realize when you, you marry somebody and you love them dearly, you bring gifts to each other. Um, when, we, when we got married, I, I was a rather crude young man. I really did not know how to look into the interior of people's hearts and sense what it was that they really needed. I was a surface person. You were the consummate deep person. And I remember those first years, uh, we'd go to church group gatherings or meetings, and on the way home, you'd say to me, didn't you hear what he was really trying to say to you? Didn't you see what was going on between that man and woman over there on the couch that were talking and they were so hostile to each other? Didn't you see those things? And, and I'd react with some degree of uh, indignation. I really wanted to pretend I did see those things, but I didn't. You had an ability to be intuitive and sensitive into the hearts of people that I didn't have. It needed to be awakened. And that was a gift you gave to me in those days. You, you taught me, step by step by step, how to ask questions, how to look into people's lives, how to to discern some of the things that were crushing them. Well, the sensitivity that you had um, was, lack of the sensitivity was because you were sent away to boarding school when you were quite young and you didn't get those teachings in your family that might have helped you with that. But listen, this was the thing. You listened to me. 
you didn't say, oh, come on, none of that's happening. Uh, just, just let me be me. Well, you know, I need to add this because it explains what you're, what's, you're describing. Uh, the man in my life in those early years who was kind of a mentor, he knew you. In fact, he introduced the two of us. And, and just a week or two before we got married, he took me aside at the lunch table. He said, Gordon, I have something to say to you. He said, you have, God has given to you a remarkable woman to marry, an extraordinary woman. He has many things to say to you through her. And then he took his finger and he wagged it in my, my face. And he said, as only a mentor can do it, he said, listen to her, listen to her, listen to her, because you're not a good listener. Well, you, you learned how to listen. Well, if he hadn't taught me, if he hadn't said it the way he said it that day, I don't know that I would have heard it from somebody else. Well, the, the other side of that is that uh, affirmation comes out of sensitivity. What can I build in your life uh, that I see that maybe there's just a touch of that, that if I uh, blow on it and fan it, it will grow in you. And uh, so a big part of what I felt I was called to was to be affirming of the smallest thing in your life that I saw. And we have these, these books that tell us over and over how you're doing this. They, they, they show you doing it, don't they? They show you doing it. And because we both felt called to ministry, to, because of Christ, what he'd done to us, to give ourselves away to others, we have to know what you're giving away. Are you giving away um, judgmentalism? And it's my way or no way? Or are you sensitive and affirming and building each other up, as Paul the Apostle kept talking about to the Ephesians? Well, it's been one of the most important issues in our relationship. Let's talk about a third principle that's in these books. Let's talk about the financial side of a relationship. Every relationship with two or more people has a financial aspect to it. You can't avoid it, whether you're talking about a marriage, a family, a church, a small group, or anything else. There's always some financial principles that have to be seen. You see it all the way through the book of Acts. Uh, what's the first thing the Christians started arguing about? It's money. So, you know, you and I come in and our plan is to go into some form of Christian money. We don't have any money. We're living from day to day in those early days when I was reading theology at graduate school. So we had to learn something about, about the use of money in our relationship. Back in those days, Sears Roebuck was a really big deal in our culture. And you and I had uh, $1,200 that we owed. And I remember the day that a friend of ours came to visit. He was a missionary. And both of us noticed that his his, uh, his clothes were falling apart. And you came to me and said, we've got to get him this work before he leaves. And I said to you, honey, we're on the, uh, right at the top of what we owe Sears. And uh, we decided we would find a way to get him that sport coat. But after that, we sat down and did business with each other about what is our financial plan going to be the rest of our lives? You know, that's 57 or 58 years ago. And when you even remind me of this, I say to myself, that conversation we sat down and had about finances that day 
was one of the great life changers in our experience. Because what we did is we set forth <clears throat> four or five financial principles that we've lived by almost totally for the last 55 years. And some people may laugh at a couple of these because a lot of people don't have given up on a couple of them. But what were they? Well, I think the first thing would be that we, we knew that we wanted to give the Lord at least 10%, no matter how small amount it was. We wanted to make sure that God received 10% of all of our income. And thanks to you, particularly, because you've been the bookkeeper in our family, we've kept pretty faithful to that. Well, and that grows. That should grow over the years. It's definitely grown in our life. It's far beyond 10%. I mean, you give apportionately. And as often as you can, you give more. Well, the second thing we decided is we would put away money, uh, a certain percentage of money, so that when we reach the age that we are right now, we could be able to live in such a way that we didn't have to depend upon other people for income. Well, don't forget, the first thing we had to do is get out of debt. Well, sure. Yeah. And so that would be us, a third principle. Yeah, get out of debt. And the only time that we would um, get into debt again for the rest of those 60 years would be when I when we bought a car or a home of the only times so. we did buy a car finally didn't we yes and so <laughs> yeah it took a while from for Gail to grow up but anyway it was uh, important that both of us were uh, attuned to these things and one of the principles was that we wanted to give our children a college education that's number four yes um, and, and those are the four principles that became very important to us. Stay out of debt, make sure we're putting money away for the future, being as generous as we possibly could, giving our kids, the kids an education so that they could leave college with their debts all paid for, paid for. That was a very important strategic decision we made, and it stood the test of time. Yes. Well, when, as we wind down our thoughts, um, We've got two more important ones. Yeah, but it's really important that people zero in on these last two because I think we are in a position, particularly since the pandemic, that all of us are very aware how much we've missed touch and talking face-to-face -face without a mask. That's your fourth idea, isn't it? Yes. So if we look at the... We talking about baggage, importance of recognizing it, the gifts we bring, our financial plan, and then the importance of touch. What do you, why do you put that word out there? Well, it's one of the, the areas that I've done a lot of study in, and uh, over the centuries, it's been known that human beings need touch. We're made. We have skin hunger. One author back about 50 years ago just said it. We've got skin hunger, and and I can remember when our our kids were in high school, uh, because I was reading this book about that time. Uh, your kids don't want you to go up and kiss them anymore, but you can brush up against their the side of their face and just say, "Hey, hey, mom has skin hunger," and I just to touch them uh, because it's so necessary. Well, and we ought not to ignore the fact that Jesus did a lot of touching. Yes. And when he touched people, the power of God went into them, or they felt that they were valued. In fact, the touching was connected to his healing power. Okay, now this is a conversation about marriage, so let's talk about touching in that context for a moment. Well, 
you and I have done a lot of counseling. And one of the things that we can tell right away when we uh, have a couple come in and sit down on the couch, where are they sitting? Now, you and I, when we, yeah, like this, they're telling us right off the bat where, they, where their marriage is. And if they come and they, they can't get close enough, we also know they're in touch with each other. Right. Now, we're sitting right here, and my knee is touching your knee, Ooh. and I'm enjoying it a lot. <laughs> well, I'm glad that after 60 years, you still like it. Yeah, I think it's very, very important that we not allow that beautiful um, transference of affection and dignity with each other. Even though you're 75, 82 years of age, as we are, you don't stop touching in no. every conceivable way. No. Do you get my message? Every conceivable way. Along with touch. Uh, you changing if, the subject? No yeah, well, I just want to say that part of what makes people touch each other is that their, their, their relationship is in touch with the other person. And by that I mean you feel like the other person really needs you. They're grateful for everything that you do for them. And so you and I particularly, all of our lives, we've been thankers. Uh, thanks, I needed that. Every time one of us does something for the other, much more so now that we're in our 80s. Thank you, thank you, and we name what we're thankful for. I decided this morning I would count how many times we talked. We, talk, we said thank you to each other by the time we ate breakfast, and it was over five times. Thank you for making the bed. Thank you for, what else we did this morning? Anyway, I should have brought my little note down here, but this is a way of life that keeps zest in a marriage. And you don't want to touch somebody you, that you feel uses you. It's very true. You don't want to touch them. Well, you know, I remember the very first time you let me hold your hand. Really? Yeah, that's a lot of years ago. But, you know, the, the, she let me hold her hand. And then it wasn't long after that, maybe 15 minutes, you let me kiss you. I don't forget, never forgotten that. And I remember what you said when I did kiss you, too. What did you say? I say. You said, what took you so long? Oh, I did not. <laughs> you, did oh. you did too. It's in the book. <laughs> it is? <laughs> oh, I, thought, hey. I always thought that that was a falsehood. Let's go on to one Let's more principle. Well, there, this sounds like, boy, you guys can do no wrong. But we can do wrong. And people wound each other. You and I have wounded each other in life. So what do we do with that? We have to, the gospel has a place for wounding. And so, thank be to God, we kept short accounts with each other when we hurt each other. We don't, I, I hear people say they haven't talked for two, two weeks. I'm saying, really? How do you do that? Because then it's awfully more hard to come back and start those conversations again. Well, what you're leaning toward is our last principle here, that we decided early in life that would be people, our relationship would be marked with mercy. And that the first thought, when one of us hurt the other, when there was something said, something done, that pulled us apart, that we would immediately be try, would try to seek mercy. And what all of that means to restore the relationship. It's thoroughly a biblical idea. And um, 
know, there have been times when you showed me incredible mercy that I didn't deserve. But, you know, you were, Christ loved the church. How did he love the church? He showed it mercy. And so we probably need to say of all the principles that we've talked about, this could be the most important one. The ability to say to each other, um, I, I'm extending mercy. You're forgiven. And, uh, and when that is operational and people don't hold grudges, you can have a renewable relationship. Well, I've harmed you, too. This is something that goes back and forth. Sometimes uh, what one person may have done is seems extreme. But there are uh, many times lots of things that go on in the other person's life that needs to be forgiven. You've always been first repenter in our family. Well, thank you for saying that. It's the truth. And when a wife has a man to love who says, it was my fault, I hope you can find it in your heart to forgive me and mean it. And it's not something that's blithe. It's something that feels first and foremost, I did hurt you and I believe that I hurt God. Then you've got a marriage that can go 60 years and still really enjoy each other like we do. Said so well. Let's review the five principles one more time. The first one was you bring baggage into a relationship in the past. The second one, you bring gifts to each other so that we can grow up. The third one was finances. You have a financial plan that keeps you in touch with the realities of what you have. Four, touching as an expression of love and affirmation. Five, the importance of showing mercy to each other when things are broken. So you see why we love these, these memory books. And even Gordon staying up at three and getting up at three in the morning to put these books together for me uh, was his way of saying, I'm in this for a lifetime. And let's always go back to the things that we learned early and keep our relationship supple and tender and always short accounts. I love that, and I love you. Thank you. God be with you. You too. Bye-bye. listening to sermon audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.